Hey everyone, and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's edition of the show is brought to you by Gigamon and uh, Josh Day, the director of the Applied Threat Research Team at Gigamon, will be along in this week's show, in this week's sponsor interview, to talk about detecting badness on your network in encrypted traffic. Uh, that is coming up later, but first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news with our good friend Adam Boileau. And Adam, uh, Paige Thompson, the Capital One hacker, uh, no longer the alleged Capital One hacker because, uh, yeah, she has been found guilty. Uh, she tried to fight the charges by saying it was good faith, you know, security research, but uh, pretty hard to convince a jury that what you were doing was in good faith when, like, you didn't tell the people you were hacking that you were hacking them and you were dropping crypto miners and stuff. So perhaps not surprisingly, she has been found guilty and is now facing a gajillion years in prison. Yes, the sentencing hasn't uh, come down yet, but yeah, it's certainly not not looking good. She's going to spend some time in the clink, I imagine. But yeah, it is, as you say, hard to be sympathetic when you're dropping crypto miners and uh, helping yourself to other people's stuff, and then also bragging about it on the internet. I mean, that's yeah. you know, that's one of the rules that maybe don't do that if you don't yeah. want to uh, go to jail. I mean, I still have some sympathy for Thompson because she's clearly not a like hardened criminal who was trying to steal money and do fraud. Like it was just silly stuff. You know, crypto miners and taking stuff because you could. And look, the the losses and fines and drama inflicted on Capital One mean that this was a serious event. Don't get me wrong, but I think it would be a shame if she was thrown in the clink for 20 years. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah, I think so. And, you know, we all know, uh, those of us in the industry certainly know plenty of people who are, you know... Who've done silly stuff. (laughs) Neurodiverse and a little bit, you know, made some poor choices and yet are entirely redeemable people. So... Yeah, yeah. There, is, there is a line to walk down the middle and American sentencing is not well known for that. Yeah, so I think sentencing for this one is coming down in about 90 days or something. Uh, yeah, September 15, uh, 2022. So yeah, let's just see what happens. I doubt she is much of a threat to society and has probably learned her lesson. But yeah, let's just see because the Americans do it a bit different, don't they? Um, <laughs> and do, speaking speaking of the Americans doing it a bit different, the UK has approved the extradition of Julian Assange uh, to face trial for espionage in the United States. Um, now that's been widely reported. Perhaps something that's been less widely reported is since we've had a change in government here in Australia a few weeks ago, uh, the the new government here is actually making representations on his behalf and seem to want to get him, uh, get the Americans to drop it and get him back here. So that's an interesting shift in the dynamic. Yes, yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether that makes some changes. And certainly this whole process has just been going on for so long. And it's just kind of an embarrassment to everybody involved now. Yeah. Um, and... You know, it just needs some resolution, whatever that is, because we just, you know, none of us want to hear about Julian Assange. <laughs> so let's just, you know, kind of <laughs> call it done one way or the other. No, I get it. Look, I mean, uh, I, I've read, I, and I would recommend everyone go and actually read the indictment. I've read the indictment and they've done a good job stringing it together, but you really do wonder if there'll be some funny knock-on effects from him being charged with espionage, right? And as for the CFAA charge, he's already been in Belmarsh kind of long enough to cover that one. Like, why don't we just call it time served, you know, and just get on with more important things. And yeah, I I hate to be saying stuff to defend him because I find him deeply irritating and immoral, but still, I think maybe it's time to let this one go so that he can parade around Australian writers' festivals being annoying. 
<laughs> exactly, yes. That's the natural state of affairs, I think. I think it's all time we all moved on and let Julian, as you say, go to writers' festivals. Yes, yes. And hang out with John Pilger being really, really kind of high and mighty and annoying. Um, that's <laughs> that's the future I see for him. Well, one of the futures. The other one is he winds up in a um, uh, in a prison for uh, in America for a very long time. Uh, moving on to some bread and butter infosec. Microsoft just you know continuing to rack up the bad PR uh, uh, on all things security. Uh, this week they've come under fire from I think it was last week actually. Amit Yaran, who's the CEO of Tenable, uh, kind of wrote an open letter saying that they suck, uh, basically because they uh, they silently patched an issue with Azure, but it took them three go rounds to get it right, and they didn't show any tr- uh, transparency. And a lot of people are kind of laying into them over this, and I think it's you know, with good reason. It seems like Microsoft's whole approach to cloud-based stuff is because cloud-based stuff doesn't get a CVE, you know, they don't really feel like they need to disclose it that much. And um, yeah, they drag out timelines and stuff. But, you know, they're being called on it basically is what's happening at the moment. Yes, and it is kind of necessary to call them on it because we know Microsoft is, you know, investing very heavily. They're building a lot of cloud stuff. Everyone is, you know, piling on board. And we're at this kind of interesting turning point where we've moved from, you know, decentralized computing, people running software that they can look at, to, you know, essentially mainframe centralized computing of the future where we don't get to see the insides of the software stack. And all of that, like, full disclosure process and pressure you know, from the late 90s, early 2000s security community that we applied to vendors, I mean, some in some cases specifically Microsoft, um, you know, to apply pressure to them to make them more open, you know, a whole bunch of the incentives in the centralized computing world uh, do line up against disclosure and against us understanding and against us having the ability to really, you know, kind of inspect the insides of how cloud services work or how well, you know, security fixes are applied or what their impact was. So, you know, we're all, I think you know, there's a new generation that's going to have the disclosure debate and uh, yeah. you know, understanding impact. And, you know, we're starting to see this play out with the cloud services because they're so complicated and they're so opaque. Uh, and yeah, the vendors are just not, they don't have really good reasons to be upfront. No. Um, and especially when they can just patch it, you know, in prod, roll stuff out. You know, we don't necessarily see it. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's a bad place for us to be using services from the outside. It's probably a good place to be. Uh, you know, for the vendors. But yeah, I think... Well, you know, sort of. I mean, they, they're, they're absolutely copying it this week. And it was a company, I think, called uh, Orca Security who first disclosed this particular bug uh, to MSRC. And they disclosed that like January 4. And it wasn't completely fixed until the end of May. Like they kept patching it and then Orca bypassed it. And, you know, they patched it again. They bypassed it again. And, you know, it was it was that sort of to and fro. But, you know, what's the uh, specific bug uh, that... that this involved because I, I I believe it was actually quite a bad one. Yeah, this was like cross tenant code execution through a component of the like Synapse Analytics thing that Microsoft have. Um, so anything cross tenant obviously is bad. Anything that's full featured enough to get you code exec uh, also bad. Uh, I think essentially the back end components that Microsoft were using to kind of run work on behalf of of you know end subscribers you know weren't sufficiently isolated. You could steal key material and then kind of move onwards from there. And you know this is the kind of of you know inside cloud plumbing gubbins that, you know, we don't have a whole bunch of reason to go look at and don't necessarily have great visibility of. And, you know, the fact that Microsoft can then go patch it and not necessarily get it right also is indicative of the amount of complexity and fast movement there. Mm. Um, So, 
yeah, it's it's this you know the sorts of things you really really don't want in a cloud environment. If it's cross tenant, anything is bad enough data access. But obviously, code exec uh, gets you uh, you know a lot more options for what you do post you know post compromise. Now, I want to talk about some research that came out of Proofpoint. I've linked through to Jonathan Gregg's uh, write-up in uh, the record on this one. Now, you know, one of the advantages of using online documents uh, in, you know, OneDrive or, you know, SharePoint Online or whatever is, you know, not much of a ransomware risk there, right? Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, well, it is so something... So we thought. Yeah, yeah. So, like, this is very much still theoretical research, but it's, uh, it's out of Proofpoint, and I think they just wanted to prove... <laughs> They wanted to prove a point. Very funny. Um, <laughs> I promise you that wasn't deliberate. But yeah, they wanted to prove a point, which is that this could be an issue. And the way they've done it is pretty clever, right? So normally if someone messes up one of your documents, you just roll back to a version before it was messed up. What they've discovered though, is if you change the versioning limit on a document and then just write over it a couple of times, well, it's unrecoverable unless you've got dedicated backups or, or, an, or a decryption key from the attackers. So... You know, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, if we saw a ransomware crew start to actually attack online hosted documents? Yeah, I mean, this is just, uh, it's one of those things that like someone points it out and you go, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Like, that just makes total sense. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, a lot of people do rely on these controls, versioning controls, you know, for ransomware prevention on the assumption they'll just be able to roll it back. And it turns out, yeah, that, that the control of how long retention is is a, per file thing which end users can control so you know we, we might be moving away from you know you get domain admin and have all of your files ransomed but individual you know users of office 55 you know sharepoint and, and whatever else you know get their browser sessions compromised and then yeah set their attention to one roll the files twice you know demand individual end user ransoms it's it's beautiful in its simplicity in a way uh, and I cannot imagine that we won't now see this used. Like it just seems, you know, every, every ransomware operator that listens to Risky Biz for pro tips on how to do their business is going to be like, go. dang, That's let's get onto that. I mean, you're talking about per user, but if you get the right amount of access into uh, the overall cloud tenant, you could just do it to everything, I'd imagine. Uh, uh, sure, yes, yeah, if you had a privileged account. But I'm just thinking like even individual end users, you know, yeah. causing documents to get locked up, it's still give enough us, Give us go. 500 bucks or your boss is going to yell yeah. at you. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, that's how we used to do ransomware. Like, before we did it domain-wide, it was individual end users getting ransomed, you know, even consumers back in the yeah. early days of ransoming. So, you know, if we make it hard to do it centralized, let's do it distributed. So, yeah, yeah. it's, it's good, good work, Proofpoint. <laughs> now, speaking of, um, you know, trying to protect yourself from ransomware and maybe that not going so well, people would know that uh, quite often ransomware crews target backup systems, right, to remove backup recovery as an option for ransomware victims. And, um, you know, just wanted to mention this one briefly, but there's uh, some bugs in Fujitsu's uh, uh, backup system, you know, appliance thingy, right? And I just think people barely pay attention to bugs like this and they're actually quite important now when your backups <laughs> yes, are so, yes, yes are. you know, when, you, when you're using your backups to protect you against a scenario where an attacker has control of your environment, you really want to make sure that your backup system is, you know, more secure than the rest of it, right? Not less. And then there's all these comedy bugs in the backup systems themselves. So I think people need to have a bit of a think really about how they're architecting backups and maybe even doing some offline backups, right? Like that might be a good idea. 
Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I still love tape. Like, tapes are a pain in the ass and tape drives are a pain in the ass, but there's just no substitute for having it on the shelf. You know, no one can actually mess with it. Uh, this was um, Fujitsu's, like, big enterprise storage systems, and the bugs in this case are, like, you can just call PHP scripts that were not intended to be invoked directly but didn't have anything that stops them from being called directly, so you can call them without auth and just code exec. Um, which, yeah, comedy web admin interface bug. And if you're relying on all of your backups being online on some big disk array because tapes are complicated and expensive, then, yeah, you're, you're in a bad place. And this is, once again, like we've seen ransomware attackers, you know, learn about backup systems and target them. This sort of bug is going to get people's data removed. Uh, so, yeah, if you have one of these, probably go get a patch. Now, obviously, there's been a whole bunch of ransomware stories uh, this week. Uh, I'm not going to mention them all, otherwise, otherwise we'd just be sitting here saying, you know, <laughs> these guys got ransomware, those guys got ransomware. Uh, but a huge supermarket chain in um, South Africa uh, has been uh, ransomware. It has 2,943 stores across Africa and 149,000 employees, and apparently they're having a uh, pretty awful time. Yes, they got themselves ransomed, a bunch of data taken, uh, and yeah, that's you know that's a big supermarket chain, um, and we've seen how effective you know disruption to that kind of supply chain uh, can be in, in making people's lives miserable. So we've seen a bunch of attacks on supermarkets in the last few years. So yeah, the impact is pretty real. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If they can manage to shut down the POS systems, I'm, I'm not sure what the impact is uh, quite with that one. I just thought that was the notable one to talk about this week. Uh, big goings on in Russia, actually, Adam, where people started noticing, people in Russia started noticing that they could no longer download Windows 10 and 11 ISOs. It was basically just a 404, right? And it looks like that is not some sort of weird CDN bug. It looks like Microsoft has actually pulled the pin on Windows 10 and 11 downloads in Russia. Now, whether or not that will result in them... You know whether whether they stop shipping patches, I guess is the is the big question, right? But for now, yeah, no Windows ten and eleven for Russians. Yes, and that's uh, you know obviously the ISOs are pretty widely available, and Russians know how to use VPNs, so you know new installs are possible. But yeah, if you were there, you have to be wondering what's going to happen to updates. What's the future support look like? You know, it, it even if it's you know you can circumvent it right now, it doesn't bode well for you know, for longevity or supportable or maintainable systems. So, yeah, it's a real tough time um, if you're, you know, sysadmin in Russia. I had a chat with a mate about this and they said, oh, well, they'll just pirate the patches. And I'm like, yeah, but they're all network connected computers, man. You can just turn them off. You know, like it wouldn't be hard to introduce some sort of countermeasure so that they couldn't be patched. It's really just a question of how far Microsoft wants to go with this. And I am sympathetic towards the argument that if you turn... American tech into a giant liability uh, for Russia, it's going to have a pretty devastating impact on their ability to do business everywhere in the world. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes, so exactly. you got to balance that um, that sort of thing. Even this is, is something that policymakers will be paying attention to from other countries and thinking, well, do we really need to start looking at alternatives? Maybe we should use Red Star Linux. <laughs> but I mean, it's a very, very real concern. Like if the tech stack can be politicized and then used as part of geopolitics, then yeah, it's a thing you absolutely have to think about. And there's plenty of states that are going to be, you know, happy with how much their of their wagon is already hitched to the US. Yeah. But there's a lot of people who aren't, right, for whom independence is important. And when everything runs on this and all of your infrastructure and critical stuff is all running on Windows and, and Microsoft and Azure even, 
you've got to ask where that leads, you know, if yeah. you're not on friendly terms with the US or might not be in the future. Yeah, and you wonder as, as you know, what can Russia do about this, right? And I think there is mm. some discussion. I think Catalan mentioned that there's been a bit of discussion happening in Russia right now about, um, you know, introducing bans on foreign technology in certain sectors in a few years sort of thing. Like they're, they're kind of thrashing that out right now. But what are your options, right? Because they don't look very good. They really no, they don't, don't look very good. And it's not just the software. It's like, how do you get the hardware at scale? And, you know, I was having this conversation too uh, uh, with a friend and they said, well, you know, they'll get by, you know, the North Koreans. Every time you see their propaganda videos, you see Dell computers in the background. And I'm like, well, yeah, but what if that's the same 20 Dell computers they just bring around when the camera, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when the cameras are coming, like scale is, is going to be an issue. And if they pull patches, I, I, I can... I really don't know how I'd feel about that. Like yeah. the idea that you would be leaving civilian institutions like hospitals in Russia vulnerable to being completely shut down by the Ukrainian IT army. Is that what we want? You know? Yeah, it's it's a really, really difficult, a difficult and thorny problem. And also it's one that's playing out not just in, in the, you know, security tech sector in Russia, I mean, it's everything else that they import from around the world, you know, cars and plane parts and, and whatever else. Like it's a really, it's a good reminder of what this very highly integrated global, you know, supply chain tech stack can mean well um, and then you think okay well let's let's break that down and get away from that and you realize it's too much of a heavy lift it'd be very hard i think yes. china china's got some options there because they're already a fair way down that road they're developing you know quite good mobile operating systems and you know they've got the knowledge they've got the development ecosystem they're actually they're actually getting there but if you're russia what do you do yes yeah exactly right they can't necessarily afford the degree of independence that they need, right? And you look at isolated states like Iran, North Korea, you know, that's, no one wants to be in that position, but very few places are going to be able to afford, you know, China is probably the only one that's going to be, maybe the EU, I don't know, you know, actually be able to afford to build their own independent everything. Well, and if you it's, do, is it going to be any good? The reason I say the, Chi the Chinese are making headway is because by all reports, you know, some of the work they're doing in the mobile operating system space is actually quite good, right? Yes. But that's because they have a huge tech industry now. Whereas yes. I don't think, you know, other countries necessarily have that same pool of expertise to draw from. They don't have that ecosystem. They don't have the experience. So I don't think it's even about money. I don't think money can fix this. No, I mean, there is just a degree of scale and experience um, necessary to do this kind of stuff. And, you know, the the natural state of affairs seems to be you end up with a, you know, Western block, a Chinese block, and then, you know, a bunch of have-nots. Uh, yeah. And that's, once again, not great for the world and for stability and equality and, you know, everyone having enough to eat and drink. You yeah. Know, it's... It's balkanization in going yes, into hyperdrive, is. isn't it? You yes. know, like yes, it's, it really is. It's something that we've spoken about for a long time, but finally we're seeing like an acute driver that's that's yes. probably going to make it happen in a pretty meaningful way. Um, and I think it will. This is something that's going to play out, not you know, just in the next two years, but in the next ten or twenty, right? So um, yes, let's see. Uh, now, staying with Russia and uh, Putin, uh, he had a speech at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, and uh, it was delayed by an hour because someone was DDoSing the uh, admission system to like the conference center or whatever. So that <laughs> took him a bit of time to sort it out. I think it was a big attack. Um, the Ukraine IT army had 
published uh, or publicized this place as a target like a couple of weeks prior to the attack and it looks like someone took them up on it and um, you know fired their old internet cannons at this thing but I mean really this doesn't achieve much it's a little bit embarrassing but so what you know yeah I mean you probably pissed off Vladimir Putin and if that's what you wanted to do today then you know good job I guess mission accomplished but yeah um, I hope that your OPSEC is good, whoever did it, because, you know, <laughs> pissing off Putin does make for some interesting cups of tea and, you know, check the crotch of your underwear for polonium or whatever. Polonium, polonium tea and Novichok in your underwear. Yes, yes, exactly, yes, Novichok in the underwear. Uh, and meanwhile, Russia yes. is warning of a... So, you know, that we spoke about it last time. We did a show where Paul Nakasone came out and said, yeah, we're cybering Russia. And then the White House came out and said, no, no, not like that. And it was all a little bit confusing. <laughs> Kim Zeta actually wrote, did a really good write-up on her, um, uh, on her substack about like what he could have been talking about there. And it's, yeah, it's mm-hmm. much along the lines of what we were talking about last week, which is boring stuff. And he was just trying to, I don't know, be relevant or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. good on him, but it, it, it didn't seem to be very helpful. Uh, and meanwhile, Russia is is now warning of a military clash if it's hit by US cyber attacks, according to the uh, the headline over at the record uh, and uh, this piece by Adam Janowski. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, I think we all understand that that's like they're already being hit by US cyber attacks and everyone's been cybering everyone forever anyway. So oh, but he's talking probably, about like if they hit our critical infrastructure and whatever. Yeah, so, you know. but I know whether that would actually play out. I mean, there's so much cyber rattling from the Russians about everything. Um, if you send them new thought. artillery pieces, that means war. Oh, okay, you send yeah. them some artillery pieces. If you send them rocket systems, that means war. Oh, okay, you send them some rocket. Yes. You know, like it seems to be the <laughs> yes. pattern, right? Just j- join the queue, I think, Yeah, uh, is, is what's going on there. Um, but no, I mean, obviously the saber rattling full stop is terrifying yeah, in the context is. of nuclear armed Russia. But yeah, I don't think the cyber is going to be the thing that pushes it over the edge. Now, I've known you for something like 20 years, and uh, it always makes me laugh when you say nuclear. Because uh, <laughs> you're an educated person, you're a smart guy, and still, every time. Nuclear. Do you remember nuclear. I had that t-shirt? Yes, you, yes, yeah, yes. I the remember. t-shirt I had, which said, <laughs> oak, and it was... A, George W. Bush era T-shirt that that I made sure I wore to New Zealand one time just so I could show it to you because it said, <laughs> "Okay, I give up. It's nuclear." Um, nuclear. Nuclear. <laughs> anyway, anyway, moving on, moving on. I'm done teasing you now. Um, mm-hmm. The Belarusian uh, cyber uh, partisans have apparently obtained, and this is a great story written up by AJ Vicens at uh, CyberScoop. They have obtained a whole bunch of audio that was recorded by the Belarusian Ministry of Internal Affairs. So they've basically stolen recordings made by Belarusian spies. This includes recordings made in embassies, all sorts of stuff. They have, uh, what is it, like 15, oh no, 1.5 terabytes of voice calls, which is 50,000 hours of recordings. And uh, as best we can tell, they're going through it right now, trying to find the stuff that will be most damaging to uh, the international relations of Belarus. So... Hopefully they can find examples of the Belarusians like being very backstabby about Putin. That'd be great. And, you know, Lukashenko is such a sneaky prick that you know there's going to be dirt there, right? Like (laughs) you're guaranteed there's going to be dirt there. But this, you know, they went quiet for a while, but it it turns out they've they've been up to something. Yeah, I mean, the level of intrusion and access that this organization has inside their inside their host government, right, because they have a bunch of insiders and, you know, there is widespread support, I guess, uh, you know, for their cause, so they get a bunch of help. Um, it's just amazing seeing 
you know, the, the state security apparatus turned against the state and then all the data coming out. So it's going to be interesting. I've got 50,000 hours of audio to listen to, most of which I imagine is, is quite boring. Yeah. Um, one wonders whether they like crowdsource it, <laughs> stick it up, find the interesting bits. Well, but that'd be a bit dangerous, yeah, but anyway. <laughs> probably, yes. But, um, you know, it's quite a lot to go through. Uh, but yeah, there's certainly some going to be some juicy things, as you say, like the, there can't not be. Some no, no, I mean, but there. 90% of it is going to be wiretaps on people who, you know, said something mean about Lukashenko on, on Facebook. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, it's just going yeah, to be yeah, that yeah. sort of dumb stuff. But you would think that there's, I mean, it sounds like they got the lot, right? And you would think that it there's does. going to be some good stuff there. Well, I'm sure there'll be something interesting in there, Chris. I mean, you know, there's no point spending all that money wiretapping if there isn't at least something worth recording, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, there'll be something there. So let's just um, let's just see what they are. What they dish. <laughs> they um, now, look, it's something that we covered pretty extensively in the Seriously Risky Business newsletter last week. Tom did a fantastic job writing this one up. Uh, but there was this whole thing where apparently L3 Harris, which is you know, a defense contractor that acquired, actually wound up acquiring Azimuth Security. Uh, so they're in that sort of, you know, uh, for want of a better word, uh, mobile spyware industry. Uh, there, were, there were rumors going around that, L3 Harris was looking to buy NSO Group and then the White House came out and sort of shut that idea down pretty quick saying no absolutely like you know they're they're under sanction and L3 Harris shouldn't be doing that and blah 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 so I think the deal's dead but we looked into this and we thought why would a company like L3 Harris which mostly does business with the Five Eyes nations, right? And some others, but a lot of their business is with Five Eyes nations. Why would they want to acquire NSO? And we did some research, spoke to some people, and it turns out there there are a few good reasons why a company like L3 Harris would want to do that. Now, first of all, uh, you would not use NSO group tools for the more sensitive intelligence missions if you're a Five Eyes partner, right? You know, your SIGIN agency is not going to be dropping Pegasus on Chinese politicians, Forget it, right? But there are a whole host of scenarios where it would make sense to use something that's a bit more commodity. And those scenarios could be dropping them on, on, and I coined this term for the newsletter and I was very happy with it, garden variety jihadis uh, would make excellent, uh, excellent targets with this stuff. And also targets in countries that don't have a very good counter espionage capability. So really what acquiring NSO would get you is scale. Okay, so you could drop tools on a lot of people that you weren't dropping tools on previously. Legitimate targets, you know, um, but ones who aren't really in a position to detect your activity and also ones where even if they do detect your activity, so what, right? Like, I think there's been a bit of a sea change at the SIGINT agencies where they've realized that, you know, perhaps scale might be a little bit more important than being completely stealthy all the time. And of course, another reason this might be a good idea is because all of those people who are currently working for NSO, they're going to continue building this sort of stuff. And, you know, perhaps bringing them into the tent in some sort of way uh, is, is going to make sense. Uh, I know you read the item that uh, Tom put together last week for the newsletter. What did you think of all of this, Adam? Yeah, I thought it was a pretty a clear analysis of the of the points, right? I mean, that there is some capability that's still useful, even though it's a bit more burnt than it once was. There's plenty of legit targets. Um, and then, yeah, the people and, you know, sort of the interaction between their, their loyalty to, I mean, NSO is primarily an Israeli organization, you know, the interaction between, you know, the people with those skills, their loyalty to, you know, their own government interests, you know, how effective they could be working for, uh, you know, an American defense contractor, 
you know, there's sort of, you know, there's a bunch of in- interesting intersections of things that we'd have to consider. And you can kind of see why, you know, it would be a thing that you would at least have the conversation about. Like, I don't yeah. think, uh, as you say, like, deal's dead anyway. But, um, you know, you can see why you would have at least have that conversation because, you know, we, we did that with, you know, finding employment for Russian nuclear scientists after, you know, the, the fall of the Soviet Union, right? Yeah. It's better, so better they work. There's the moral issue, which is NSO have behaved awfully and, you know, them being acquired would sort of reward people who invested in, you know, a horrible organisation, mm, yes. right? So there is that <laughs> component of the, you know, the moral aspect to all of this. But then there's the, well, you know, if they were brought into uh, the tent of a company like L3 Harris, you know, you're not going to see their tools necessarily popping up in the same places that were problematic previously. You still might see it every now and then, but certainly that's a company that cares a lot more about compliance than NSO's, you know, happy flowers governance board that didn't seem to do anything, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, you can kind of see why, but it just... You know, if that was me sitting in a meeting trying to decide whether we were going to go ahead with that, it's like this just sounds complicated. Like I don't have that much grief left in me this week. Like let's let's do something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Anyway, um, people can check that out in uh, seriously risky business. I think last Friday, like uh, it went out a day late because uh, Tom was at a um. Uh, Lowy conference last week. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, yeah, and obviously you can find links to all of our newsletters and stuff at risky.biz slash subscribe. And this next item we're talking about actually came from our other newsletter, which is written by Catalan Kimpanu. You know, as I've mentioned on the show previously, he, he pays pretty close attention to the Russian press and he found this absolutely hilarious item, uh, which is a guy, Oleg uh, Rosakovich in Moscow, was detained uh, on suspicion of hacking into the Federal Customs Service in Russia to like clear his parcels through customs. <laughs> now, I'm guessing he wasn't doing this to clear, I don't know, you know, mobile phones or whatever and because he didn't want to pay the customs duty on it. I'm, I'm thinking it was a bit more than that. But yeah, he, he got pinched for actually hacking into customs to, to force clearance on some items. <laughs> sounds sounds resourceful and um yeah i'm sure he made a reasonable amount of money you know providing whatever service i assume he you know provides the service for other people who wants to clear their their packages through customs in a rapid manner um according to the report uh he had about 10 cars and several apartments so yeah you know, maybe the maybe the cars were in the packages he was clearing <laughs> I don't know <laughs> well, something them. that you could turn into cars i think is more likely mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now mate we've got something else to add to the risk register we got something important to add to the everybody's risk register right now. Uh, and this is funny because we spoke about these fiber optic cable cuts in France. We spoke about them on the show and we're like, yeah, it's weird. Like who knows uh, who was doing that? A listener, I can't remember who it was. I'm very sorry. But a listener actually wrote to me on Twitter and said, um, it looks like this was probably neo-Luddites as in, you know, anti-technology kind of weird hippies. And I was like, okay, great. You know, that's the, that's the last thing we need. Uh, and yeah, it turns out that's panned out, right? <laughs> Cyberscoop is now reporting. Uh, there's a piece here from Suzanne Smalley uh, at Cyberscoop that, yeah, it looks like the people who are attacking telco infrastructure in France are just like anti-technology weird hippies. Um, and yeah, it's just, it, I mean, what a world. What a world. And I mean, I guess we've seen enough 5G towers get burnt down and maybe the intersection of, you know, sort of Luddites and 5G anti-vaxxers or whatever else, yeah. like they've been emboldened. Uh, there was some reporting previously um, about fundamentalist Catholic, like, monks setting fire to relay antennas because yeah. they also didn't like 5G. So you can imagine anti-fiber optic monks, I suppose, you know, kind of 
opening the roadside cabinets and 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 chopping people's fiber up. But what a crazy world! Um, yeah. And uh, I don't know how you put that on your risk register because I mean, you know, if you're all that civilian infrastructure is designed to be operated in, you know, basically a, a you know passive, not hostile environment. Um, yeah, I mean, this is some real seen... like Unabomber mentality stuff. You know what I mean? Yes. Like we should all go live in log cabins. You know, get off the internet, turn off the gram. You know, put down your phone. <laughs> clip clip. That seems to be the vibe here. I was going to say, maybe when you put it like that, maybe they've got a point. Yeah. Yeah. We could solve all of these security problems if we didn't have computers. Yes, Hmm. that's right. Although we might create some other problems there, Adam. It's a thought worth uh, worth bearing in mind. Uh, Chinese APT groups are using a patched Sophos firewall vulnerability to drop um, uh, malware on a bunch of targets in South Asia. So that's kind of interesting. It's um, because people don't patch that stuff. They just don't, you know? So um, Chinese APT crews having a good time. Yes, uh, they've been dropping malware, I think, and then doing like uh, using that to intercept the DNS to then redirect traffic and you know onwards to compromise people and systems. But yeah, just goes to show like everything that's in, on the internet, you know, everything's internet facing, security controls in particular, you do got to patch them all. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, where that bugs in your firewall admin. <sighs> I mean, it's the year 2022 and there's still web app bugs and people's firewall happens. I don't know why it's on the internet in the first place, but it's where we are. And uh, there's a crew, a Russian crew using uh, the Felina exploit to target a bunch of people in Ukraine. But it looks like the actor shows possible links to TrickBot, but isn't TrickBot. They're just sort of like adjacent to them. They're tracked as UAC uh, 0098. What did you make of this one, Adam? Yeah, I mean, we'd certainly expect to see, you know, Felina in particular used, uh, you know, pretty rapidly in that environment. And, you know, we've, we've certainly speculated about, you know, nexus between Russian interests, you know, from a state side and, uh, you know, crime groups and their infrastructure and tooling. And, you know, just makes sense to use whatever works. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of hard to say beyond, you know, an alignment of, you know, sort of the utility of the tooling and everything, but, you know, we certainly would expect to see it. It's the nexus bit that I find interesting here because I'm not sure what that means at this point. And I'm sure I'm yeah. going to get an inbox full of threat researchers telling me. <laughs> that's <laughs> well, that's going to be one of the interesting bits that, the, you know, the wrap of this this conflict between Ukraine and Russia is to go and understand exactly how the cybers all played out and, you know, pull all the threads together. And, you know, I'm you know it's going to be really interesting. Uh, yeah. to see how, how this all actually played out because obviously we only have you know, bits and pieces of it so far. Now, we've spoken about this next story a few times. Um, Andy Greenberg's got a great write-up at Wired. Um, there were those Indian activists who got arrested uh, for all sorts of stuff and it was it was looking pretty clear that the evidence on their computers was actually planted. Um, so Andy's got a write-up with more detail on how all that's unfolded and it looks like the people who planted, like the people who planted the evidence on the computers, the forensic analysis kind of indicates that it was actually the police themselves, which isn't that surprising, but it's interesting that they can tie that activity directly to the police. But like one great example of like the stuff that they planted was, you know, a letter purporting to be from the target of the surveillance saying like how he was going to kill Modi. Right. But it was written in a version of Word that had never been installed on his computer, (laughs) like stuff like that. Right. So it's just, um, you know, I don't know that there's anything to really unpack here from a, you know, hard cyber point of view, but it's a it's a wild story. Right. And, um, you know, you, you do wonder if we'll see more of this sort of thing in certain places. Yeah. I mean, the admissibility of digital evidence and stuff collected through you know, implants and, and remote compromise and things. There's always been a, you know, I think we've sort of argued about a bit, but 
you know, hasn't been really pushed real hard. And this is, a, you know, a great example of, well, it certainly looks like a great example of, of how that can really go go wrong. And the one of the things I thought was interesting in this story is, you know, the number of researchers and, and people at, you know, kind of email operators and stuff that are clearly kind of outraged by how brazen and shitty this is yeah. and kind of cooperating to go and say, you know, for example, pulled a bunch of records of when um, the police people were breaking into the mail accounts they were they were adding you know backup recovery email addresses and stuff and just like straight up using their police email addresses <laughs> as the recovery yeah. which you know makes you wonder whether that was like well they were maybe they thought they were authorized maybe they didn't care at the time then they subsequently used it for bad things or whatever else but yeah there's this kind of there seems to be a degree of cooperation in investigating this because it's just such a brazen abuse of power but um, i mean ultimately may... ultimately we have to depend on the police not being corrupt to avoid things like planted evidence right like it, there, there's no real difference between doing something like this or dropping a gun on a murder suspect like you know putting it in their yes, apartment yeah. it's or a brick of heroin or whatever right it's the same thing Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, this is a thing that we have struggled with for a long time. You know, and the police do have a lot of power and, you know, there is a long history of abuse and, you know, doing it via tech. Maybe there's better trails. You know, maybe we can point yeah. the finger more easily because of the digital digitalness. Well, that's a point, this, right? Like if you, can, if you can throw some shade on the evidence, um, you know, if you do your own forensic analysis, that's, you know, that's something, isn't it? Yeah, and that's you know maybe more options than you have in some of the more physical you know examples that you brought up. So, you know, in that respect, maybe it's it's better. But I'm 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 just glad that there are people who are pulling this thread and doing the investigative work uh, and kind of making this information available. Um, and we'll see what the you know defense lawyers uh, for these people can do with it. Yeah. Uh, a worldwide sweep. This is a story from uh, Tonya Riley over at CyberScoop. A worldwide sweep of more than 1,770 call centres suspected of like uh, call and email scams uh, has resulted in the arrests of 2,000 scammers and money launderers, uh, according to Interpol, which is, um, you know, good news, but that's not many arrests considering the number of premises they hit. I'm guessing they just um, scooped up the managers. Yes, I mean, anything that moves on a bunch of these scammy call centres, uh, you know, is, is great work. And that's, you know, a thousand call centres, that's a lot of scale, that's a lot of work. So, you know, lots of respect to the, you know, the people at Interpol and other police forces involved uh, in actually doing this. But yeah, I mean, I guess if they can make a dent in it, that would be great. 2,000 people doesn't seem like very many. But as you say, if they've rounded up managers and people who are really making money out of it. Yeah, that's certainly a good start. And I imagine, you know, business records and technical artifacts and things seized in this process uh, will probably, you know, lead onwards to many other things. So, yeah, bad day if you work in the in the scam industry, I imagine. You never know what, what records have been nicked and uh, what your exposure might be. But they're the worst of the worst, aren't they, right? Like, but, so there's, there's certain uh, categories of, of cybercrime. Like, you know, a, a ransom wearing a bank or a supermarket chain or, okay, whatever, you know, like it's it's crappy. But then there's like ransomware in hospital, right? Which yes. is just, you know, you should die when you do that stuff, right? Yeah. And these people who steal money from little old ladies, you know, yeah. like they're, yeah. just, they're just horrible. They're horrible, aren't they? Yes, 100% 100% agree, yes. Uh, so let's hope a bunch of these people go down and that, uh, you know, the, the process through which they get investigated is not sufficiently corrupt that they just walk away and start up against somewhere else. Yeah, there's a guy who does like YouTube videos where he just strings along these attackers. Oh, I yes, watched one. You've seen, yeah, yes. you, you know the one yeah, I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. And there was one yes, where yeah. it was just so funny because he strung them out over days, mm. and did stuff like eventually bought like the Google 
Google Store gift cards or whatever, but then like redeemed them while the scammer could watch. And the scammer's screaming, no, don't do that. Don't do, you know, and this is after like three, four days of just sinking hour after after hour after hour. Of, oh, that guy is so funny. It's yeah, okay. it was just like basically frustrating this guy to the point where he was going to jump out a window. It was, um, it, yeah. was, it was quite satisfying. I'll see if I can dig it up and drop a link into the show notes. No yeah. promises though. Because yeah. um, he runs like a fake, like runs like a local mirror of a bank where he can like manipulate the account balances yes. and stuff. And it's, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's good quality quality scam baiting so yeah no it's yeah. it's wonderful yeah i'm glad you saw that as well yes. <laughs> i think i found that via tiktok i saw an excerpt and i'm like i gotta yeah. look the, the rest of this up you know <laughs> basically how it went um because uh, he like he like speaks hindi and stuff it's so good yeah yeah <laughs> and listen I think into the background posed, conversations he posed as like a psychologist and then said he had to step out and had the scammer like actually run a session for the you know for the psychologist's client and then the guy <laughs> pretended to be the client and actually had this guy like count. Anyway, I'll have to look it up now that I've spoken yeah. so much about it. But um, yeah, I'll see if I can find it. It's um, it's <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, what else? What else? What else? Okay, so we've got some hardware security research. Um, headline here from uh, the record is MIT researchers find new hardware vulnerability in the Apple M1 chip. Is this a vulnerability that we need to care about, Adam? N- n- no. Uh, I mean, it's good research and it's solid work. Um, this was looking into... Uh, like a uh, hardware-assisted pointer authentication, so like encrypting pointers and stuff, so that if you're doing memory corruption, you're kind of struggling to be able to overwrite stuff and, and manipulate pointers. Um, this was using like side channels to retrieve, like you know, to be able to obtain the real pointer values or the correct values. You know, it's it's one of the things that requires relatively privileged access in the first place. Um, so if you're so root, you can bypass pack sort of thing. Right? Kind of, kind of, yes. Yeah, like if you're it. in the kernel, you can bypass it kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's it is, it's legit good research. It's important that we understand what the state of the art is, you know, and consider this when we're designing the overall solutions. But no, it's not a thing that, you know, the average M1 user should care about. We've also got some some research to talk about here. Ars Technica is reporting on it, but it's um, uh, some sort of flaw or, or technique that you can use against Intel and AMD uh, chips to, what, extract stuff from the secure enclave? Is that about right? Yeah, this was um, about a, you know another way to do side channel leakage of information, and they've got you know a working example. The researchers in this case of extracting cryptographic key material from a particular type of um, you know cryptographic process. And um, this one is interesting because uh, it's a, a sort of a, an approach, a general technique to turn power analysis. And obviously, we've done a lot of work over the years on power side channels, where if you can monitor the power utilizations of computer systems, you know, smart cards are one of the early applications of this, then you can determine the state of computation being done on them. Uh, and then also timing attacks where you can modif- you know, check how long something takes. And there was a lot of work on building constant time algorithms uh, so that you couldn't determine the state of the computation or the data being processed based on how long it took. And this is an interesting intersection of those two where they essentially are measuring power usage through timing. So modern CPUs you know, ramp up the frequency that they're operating, uh, you know, to manage power usage very, very, you know, sort of aggressively and in very, you know, in very real time. Um, so this was research that would do the sorts of things you would do with power analysis, but via timing, so that you could then get timing information out of constant time algorithms, and then use that to pull cryptographic key material out. So again, not a practical going to hack you in the wild sort of thing but also a really interesting line of research because you know the use of constant time 
cryptographic primitives has been a real mainstay of defeating timing analysis and power analysis we've kind of relied on well you, know, you kind of need physical control doing it long distance you know kind of spook style was difficult um so yeah it's a really interesting research not you know super practical for real attackers right now but just an, yeah, an important kind of combination of two things that breaks an assumption that we had about how we were going to defend. So great research. Yeah. But yeah, again, you know. same old story, right? So, yeah. 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 Not keeping like keep the thing that keeps me up at night, being able to adjust the amount of, you know, version backups in Office 65, not this. <laughs> Lorenzo over at Motherboard has a look, what I think is actually a really, really interesting story up. And the reason I think it's so interesting is because it tells us a little bit about the future and where certain things are going. He's got a write-up on something called Tornado Cash, which is like a Tumblr for, on, for Ethereum, right? For ETH. So it's a Tumblr, but it's kind of, it's a tumbling protocol that no one really controls. So you can't really take it down, which is kind of something that we're not dealing with in Bitcoin world just just yet, right? Because what we see is someone operates a Tumblr and the FBI, you know, issues indictments and says, well, you're money launderers and you're going to prison. And that makes other people kind of close down their Tumblrs. This is a different model and it's very interesting. Uh, walk us through this one, Adam, because this I, I just thought this was a fascinating story. Yeah, so t- Tornado Cash is this, as you say, on blockchain and for Ethereum uh, tumbling protocol that's used to obscure the source of your of your ether uh, as it transits across the network. And this is one of the most successful ones. I think um, we saw, you know, for example, North Koreans using it to launder money that they stole from you know, whatever that you know, like cryptocurrency game thing that they hacked. So something like you know billions. They reckon what three point five billion US dollars worth of ETH have been tumbled through this, you know, since it launched in August twenty nineteen. So pretty Yeah, they reckon about about like one billion of that was illicit. Yes, as you would would certainly expect. Um but yeah the interesting thing is this is a you know the Ethereum blockchain allows you to have smart contracts that are code that run on the blockchain uh, and this service you know is implemented as a smart contract. Um and the people who built it uh, a, released the code on GitHub, so it's kind of open source, other people can run instances of it. Uh, and secondly, they actually uh, destroyed the key material necessary to update it. Uh, so this thing runs on the blockchain as part of the kind of, you know, the, the, the process of mining the chain for Ethereum. The, you know, the code gets executed in a virtual machine by the blockchain nodes. Um, and yeah, without the private key material, you can't update that. So this is essentially now free to run for the you know the future of the blockchain and they can't do anything about it and no one really like it's become autonomous like it's sort of you know skynet money laundering um, and in terms of the weird future that you know the, the crypto bros want like this kind of you know the the code is law you know we built a system that we can't stop etc 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 like that is the future that we're heading towards and how that interacts with regulation yeah um, well, exactly, it's, it's and, if, and if, if the miners are executing this code, which is enable money laundering, I mean, is that kosher? Like, I don't know, right? Yeah, like it's, it's, yeah. And, and Tom Uren in Seriously Risky Biz, he, he wrote something that I thought was interesting. It was a few months ago. He was writing about all this sort of stuff and said, well, there's going to be more options to do stuff like tumbling and anonymization and people doing weird stuff with uh, DAOs, right, uh, with DAOs. And it, it's, you know, this is a good example of one of those unusual kind of, 
blockchain quirks that's enabling a bit of laundering. The story does also point out too that if there's not much volume going through this tumbler, then sometimes the cash is is traceable. And it look, it's a really well written, nicely balanced piece, and I think everyone should yes. check it out. So well done, Lorenzo. Um, good good stuff. But um, there's some funny stuff like <laughs> there's some funny stuff happening in the um, in the old crypto world. Uh, at the moment, I read a I read a really fascinating blog the other day about how someone took a whole bunch of some cryptocurrency called Sol, which didn't have mar- much market depth, right? So they they couldn't really sell it because there there just wouldn't have been a market there. But then they went to one of these like pretend crypto banks where you can borrow stuff like Tether, like stable coins based on deposits of similar value. You know, you pay for it. Um, so they just deposited all of this stuff they couldn't sell and took it out in Tether as a loan and then disappeared, right? So, which I think you can do because code is law. So there's, yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, it's just an interesting way to cash out of a problematic asset because now the, the virtual bank's left with that asset, which is technically worth that much money, but they can't do anything about it. And it, and it tells you that the rats are finding creative ways to leave the ship. Um, that was my uh, comment on that. So I think it's, I think it's going to be, a wild few months as a lot of the the cheap money that's been propping up crypto as that money goes away we're going to see all sorts of wild stuff happening yeah yeah it's gonna be a fun ride i'm looking forward to it <laughs> yeah and uh finally we've got a write-up from tim starks over at cyberscoop looking at uh CISA's, uh list of you know vulnerabilities that you should patch now right so they maintain this list and um you know just an interesting write-up of what's on the list who's using it and also some criticism of the list for having stuff that's like not really being exploited and you know has been around since 2016 and uh you know why is that on there sort of thing but it does you know we've certainly said on the show that guidance coming out of various bits of the u.s government lately has been pretty good and um you know i think uh evaluating and criticizing it is is one way to make it better yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, this list has been legitimately useful. You know, some of the criticism leveled at it is, you know, as it kind of gets bigger and bigger, it loses some of its importance, some of its impact. Um, and, you know, curating it well is a thing that, that it has been doing so far. But there is some concern that if it becomes, like, if it almost becomes a victim of its own success, like yeah. if it's really useful, then we end up with people saying, well, we're only going to patch stuff that's on this list without considering, you know, kind of site local, you know, things specific to individual environments. And so then the temptation is to put more stuff on it, which then means that, you know, uh, as it balloons out, it becomes less and less useful. You know, people will start And then start you just wind to, up with a CVE database and then, hey, and then maybe you, you need some sort of scoring system to work out which... And, and then, then we're right back where we are. CVSS yeah, and yeah. yes, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is a, you know, maybe this is just sort of a natural, you know, sort of life cycle of <laughs> vulnerability taxonomies is <laughs> yeah. that they, they start good, everyone pays attention to them and they get too important and then, yeah, onwards. But, um, you know... As you said, the good quality data coming out of the US government at the moment is genuinely helpful. And, you know, trying to triage this stuff from CVE and from CVSS and kind of the, the way that we had been doing it has you know, clearly not been working very well. Um, and, you know, uh, like this stuff is actually going to get you wrecked right now sort of list, you know, is useful for prioritization. So, um, you know, you can see why people want it. Well, mate, that is actually it for this week's news. Thank you so much for joining me. It's uh, been a lot of fun. It's always a lot of fun. And uh, we'll do it all again next week. (laughs) Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. Talk to you then. (laughs) 
that was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this week's show is brought to you by Gigamon and Gigamon's Applied Threat Research Team Director, Josh Day, is this week's sponsor guest. So yeah, Gigamon makes an NDR product. Uh, a lot of you would know that already. And uh, in this chat, we talk a bit about how NDR tools are detecting badness in all of that encrypted traffic these days. It's been a while since the great SSL revolution of circa 2014. And uh, yeah, NDR products have largely caught up and know how to be useful even when there's so much encrypted traffic going through networks that they can't really you know, do deep inspection on. Now, I did kind of send this interview off the rails uh, a bit about halfway through by bringing up ESNI, which is uh, encrypted server name indication, which these days is called ECH or encrypted client hello. And basically ECH is a privacy measure that hides the domain name a user is connecting to when they're transiting traffic through like a shared edge, uh, like a CDN, right? So a passive network observer can't pull the domain name, the destination domain name out of network traffic uh, and they can't pull that out of a certificate or a name field during a handshake uh, or, or whatever, right? So uh, it'll really complicate life for NDR vendors, which is why I asked Josh about it. But there's two things we need to consider here. Now, first is ECH has been a draft for quite a while and the only CDN that has flagged support for it is Cloudflare. And the only browser that supports it is Firefox and it is off by default. So it's unclear that it'll ever actually see widespread adoption. The true believers in those organizations are going to keep pushing it though. So it's sort of a, a, you know, it's that conversation between the true believers who want privacy everywhere and the people who are saying, no, it's going to break too much stuff, right? Age old thing. Now, the second thing is we'll probably wind up if this thing does happen with enterprise tooling that will allow us to block it and still connect to those services that demand it, uh, either via enterprise instrumented browsers or some other creative approach to break and inspect. So either way, uh, Josh says we'll muddle through. Uh, we will muddle through. Anyway, here is Josh talking about how network detection techniques adapted to you know near universal SSL. Uh, and oh, one last note, I recorded this interview on my mobile kit from bed while I was sick with COVID, uh, so I wasn't my sharpest. But anyway, here is Josh Day. Enjoy. It was a little bit more of a easy... Uh, world for operating when encryption wasn't ubiquitous, but now it is. Um, and so uh, I think the stats that we collected recently were 81% of web traffic was encrypted versus 19% not encrypted. Um, that's that's going north-south. And then east-west was around 65% encrypted versus 35% That's, uh, that's actually kind of... So, so the thing that strikes me about those numbers is the first number, I would have thought it would be more than 81%. <laughs> And right. the second number, I would have thought it would be less than 60 or 60, whatever, you know, like that's, um, okay. So those, those numbers are a bit surprising. They are, they are. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not too sure we didn't really dig into the, uh, the 19% to see what was going on there, but it, it does, it does speak to the fact that this is becoming more of a concern when it comes to threat detection, because 81% of regular traffic, meaning, uh, you know, I don't have the numbers for the encrypted threats whether that's 81, 19, just, just the same way as uh, the rest of web traffic. But it certainly is increasing. We have seen that. And, uh, and like you said, it's easy when it's, when it's just simply looking at the certificate. Okay, I know that this is a malicious certificate. I can pull out the metadata and I can detect on that. Uh, additionally, there are things that we can do from an analytical perspective or you, you know, looking at the TTPs, looking at the behaviors, doing analysis with flow and, and correlating with SSL, 
um, to identify new traffic that's also behaving more in a way that looks like beaconing, uh, rather than just saying this is a unique uh, unique certificate, which is what I think we tend to see oftentimes in this space is just looking for anomalies, which isn't particularly helpful. What we tend to see is that there are some folks in the space who tend to look for, well, let me look and see what's anomalous, what's unique in your network, what's weird in your network. And that, and that you know, word weird, there's lots of things that are weird in people's networks. Like most things are weird. It's not really a good marker for things that we can use for detection, which I think is where we are a little bit differentiated because we start from a threat perspective. What do the threats do? What are the TTPs? What are those choke points that adversaries need to go through in order to identify uh, you know, or, or get to their objectives? And so if you start from a threat perspective, using threat intelligence, um, using that awareness of the threats, and then say, based on that, what would I look for from an analytical perspective um, within that? And then you're going to have a lot more success than just looking for straight up anomalies. All right, all right. So, so I think that's give one us a, of our... Give us, a, give us a concrete example of what that actually looks like, though, right? Because it's... Um, I have no idea what that looks like, right? When you're saying start with the threat intelligence and then work backwards, you know, what would... So what would that initial thread that you would pull on look like and what sort of detections would it lead to? Yeah, so a good example here would be, um, you know, thinking about, like, typical crimeware. So a good example is Emotet, which we thought was dead and, and of course, now is back. Um, but yeah, Emotet, Emotet is dead. Long live Emotet, basically. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, by by taking a look at Emotet, we can say, okay, this is a, a real threat that's out there. It's affecting uh, corporations, um, and uh, and it's it's pretty serious. So let's let's take a look at it. Let's look at the PCAP. Uh, let's maybe get a sample, run it, observe it, um, and at the end of the day, we can see what types of certificates is it using. What's the infrastructure look like? And, um, and being able to pivot off of that and, and write detection logic. Um, where this moves from a behavioral perspective is we can see, okay, a lot of the times the command and control stuff is, is compromised infrastructure. And so it can be something that, that has somewhat of a reputation. Although typically it's, it's not gonna be uh, a widespread domain that's being used all over the internet. You know, it's gonna be maybe pockets of activity. And so we could say, okay, I know that for Emotet command and control, typically it's going to be a less common domain, but it's going to be a domain with some level of uh, longevity. And so I can look for those domains that have been around for a while and yet aren't super widespread within corporations. So let's say, you know, I'm not going to see them in more than 50% of my customers, uh, just as an example. Um, and so I could look for maybe this is a new domain to my customer, but not a new domain uh, from a registration standpoint. It's also going to be a specific uh, type of connection, so I can look at the flow attributes and see um, downloading this file, it's about this much uh, in, uh, in terms of kilobytes um, over that flow, and then going even further, refining that, and then, uh, and then reducing the number of false positives based on tuning over time. So that's yeah. kind of what I would look um, or how I would look and evaluate something like Emotet and, and take some of those behaviors, some of those um, external attributes uh, that you don't necessarily see in the flow or in the session and then applying that to help make a detection decision. 
Yeah. So one thing I'm curious about right now, this is a drum that I was beating really loudly a couple of years ago where, you know, TLS 1.3 drops and you look at that from a network detection standpoint when you've got stuff like encrypted SNI and you think, man, when the bad guys figure out how to use CDNs, we've got problems, right? Um, it hasn't seemed to... I mean, you see the, the occasional... Uh, report of some crew using, uh, you know, using CDNs in interesting ways for their C2, but it hasn't really been adopted widespread yet. I mean, one of the disadvantages of using CDNs for C2 is if the threat teams at the CDN find you, they just crush your entire thing. Uh, so that's that makes it less than ideal. But are you starting to see that yet? And you know, what's, what's your plan for dealing with that? Because I've always wondered, like, as an as a NDR vendor or as, a, as an NDR, as a researcher in an NDR company, how do you even begin to start building detections for people who are attacking your customers and know how CDNs work? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. First of all, to the, to the question of ESNI, we haven't seen a huge uptick in ESNI. Typically, we're no. still seeing ESNIs. What are they yeah, doing? So, <laughs> <laughs> what are they doing? Get your shit together, know. guys. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, but I I appreciate it, you know. So um, yeah. so that's that's one aspect. Um, the other aspect is that we're seeing, and I think this could be uh, really necessary going forward, at least for bigger organizations, is the adoption of SSL uh, interception. Yeah. And so we're we're going forward from kind of here from from here on out. We're looking at all of our detections, all of our threats that we're writing detection content for, and we're coming from the perspective of, what if I see this threat and it's still encrypted? And what if I see this threat and we've applied TLS uh, interception and decrypted that, and now we have the, the raw HTTP? Um, and, and able to write a more in-depth, more accurate, uh, have a little bit more confidence in that signature. Um, and so that we're approaching it from both angles. And really, I yeah. think you're going to get the most impact if you do have uh, that that introspection or that in, inspection uh, turned on and enabled. So that's where I, I would... think it was it was it was actually your colleague Joe Slowick who to me had the definitive take on that uh, when he was co-hosting the show one day when he said, look, eventually, you know, this stuff is going to get hard, so hard that um, fully instrumented enterprise grade browsers that enable you to wrangle this stuff and get inspection is what is, is where we're going to land up. And I think, you know, I think really that is, that is where we're going to go. Uh, I do, I, I do agree with that, but like, you know, we're going to have to experience some pain before everybody takes on a whole other management level for their, <laughs> for their browsers. Right. And we're just, we're just not seeing it yet. So, I mean, what he said and what you said seem to be more or less the same thing, which is, no, we need to do break and inspect uh, when this stuff starts becoming a problem. Is that is that about right? Yeah, I think so. I think that there's a, there is a level of pain that's involved, certainly, in, in implementing uh, break and inspect. But, and, and we're not seeing it very widespread either. Um, but I think mm. it is an area that, that we are seeing an uptick in. We are seeing more, uh, more corporations move to that model. Um, and I think that we need to go there ultimately. Now, look, a question I, I often like to ask people who appear on this show, particularly people who work in like, you know, detection and response is, have you seen anything lately that impressed you? I, I mean, from the attacker side, right? Because uh, 
quite often I ask that question, I get some really interesting responses where, you know, an attacker was doing something very, very clever, clever that someone just stumbled on, picked it apart and just went, okay, wow, you know, gotcha, but well done. Kudos to you, criminal. Uh, have you, have you had anything like that lately? You know, I think, I think the things that always really impress me are the well-executed supply chain attacks yeah. Um, where, where somebody is able to get access and Upstream. prior to distribution, yeah. you know, they're even doing testing of their deployment mechanism. They're making sure that they're avoiding detection for that entire period. Uh, you know, to be honest, ransomware does not impress me because their whole goal is get in, move quickly, and then deploy out their ransomware payload and execute it. There's no... There's no evasion. They just have to there's be faster no than the defenders. Yeah, it's all, there's no, it's all there's about no level scale, of stealth. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's it's not impressive. It's really just how quickly can I get past the defenders and execute my payload to make some money. Um, it's really the stuff that's the long haul operations, um, you know, where I, I need to stick around in this network for nine months to a year in order to yeah. enable my final objective. Like, so own the customers, that's, that's, own the customers, vendors, mess with the source, and then you just become that vendor. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's always really impressive to see uh, executed well. Yeah. All right, Josh Day, thank you so much for joining us uh, on Risky Business for this conversation. It's been a pleasure to chat to you, my friend. Thanks, Patrick, same to you. That was Josh Day from Gigamon there. Big thanks to him for that. And uh, yeah, you could check out their security kit uh, over at gigamon.com. Gigamon acquired one of our sponsors years ago, Iceberg, who were an early player in what I'd call the sort of the modern and contemporary NDR stuff that does clever stuff with metadata. So yeah, uh, go check them out. Uh, and that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back in a couple of days with a soapbox edition of the program featuring HD Moore. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thank you.